Welcome to the Personality Portrait Podcast, where we challenge what we think we know about how our personality works and is shaped. I am psychologist Franco Greco. In each episode, I have a conversation with a guest exploring what has shaped their lives and personality. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to today's podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking to Matthew Sortino. Matthew is a teacher and podcaster based in Melbourne. He hosts the podcast Moments of Clarity. Moments of Clarity is a podcast that aims to explore the inherent goodness of human beings through long-form conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Matthew, how would you describe your personality? It's a great question. Um, I think it's changed a lot over time, and I'm not sure if that's possible or it's just my interpretation of my personality, but I would say I'm quite outgoing and enjoy people's company, but people that I'm close with or people that I know, I don't love being in environments where I'm not, I guess, in control perhaps, like with you know the, the discussions with people or being noticed even. I feel, yeah, that I like to be a part of it, be a member, not a number, if you will. So that's how I sort of feel in terms of that. I would say, yeah, personality. I've done these personality tests in the past and I've got a sort of a leader and and someone that wants to feel that they're making a difference, I guess. So that's where I've got in the past. But I would say definitely an extrovert, although COVID is teaching me that I may be an introvert. I think it's teaching us, I think it's teaching us all that, isn't it? That there's a different part of our personality coming out, isn't it? Like it's the, that's the part of that, isn't it? Yeah, and I wonder if I'm hiding my extroversion just to to cope as a coping mechanism that if I, you know, start hanging on to what I used to, how I used to get validation, which was through others, if I hold on to that, maybe I wouldn't be coping as well as I feel I am during this stage. So instead, I'm just writing, reading, you know, going for walks and sort of keeping things in-house a little bit. Yeah, I guess so in that regard, sometimes being an extroverted person or socially oriented person you get a lot of reward by being around people. And so so that's not happening as much. So there's other parts that you're, you're dealing with in terms of coping that situation. But I guess there's a part of you that feels like if you, if you think about all the things you do get out of being an extrovert, which is, you know, you get a reward out of that, you get the dopamine, you get the positive reinforcement. If you're, you know, which I think you are an outgoing sort of person that likes to be around people and you're not getting that. So... I guess maybe the question is, you know, how do you feel when that happens and that, that doesn't happen? Like, what's the result of that for you? When, when I don't have the social interaction. Look, it used to, I'll tell you this, like it used to make me feel a little bit worthless. If I didn't do something on a Saturday night or if someone wasn't looking for me, if I found out friends were hanging out without me, that would break me being a younger person, you know, late teens, early 20s, I would say. And that was probably because I was quite shy. I, you know, primary school, I had lots of friends. And then the start of high school, it was a challenge for me. And I feel like maybe I had to reinvent myself and then find friends again in, in from year nine, 10 onwards, I, I sort of found myself again. But year seven and eight were tough in the friendship, you know, social circles, I would say. And, and that was sort of for many different reasons. I didn't move across from primary school to secondary with many people was one reason. It was a very different world. But so I'd say that. And one example I've got in my mind of a, a moment that I recognize where I required others was it was schoolies, but it was like a preschoolies thing that we went to in Phillip Island uh, when I was year tw- end of year 12. And I, I sat at the beach 
sorry, it wasn't Phillip Island, it was Portsea. And I sat at the beach and I looked across the water and there were dolphins. And I looked and there was like four or five dolphins. I just had a, a fight with my girlfriend at the time and an argument. And I walked off and went to the beach and sat. And I saw these dolphins for the first time that I'd seen dolphins. I'm not really a wasn't really a beachgoer at the time, so I hadn't had a chance to see that. And and I thought this would be great if I had someone here to share it with me. I didn't say this was great on my own or this was a moment, you know, that I should be reflecting on. It was only going to be great if I had someone else to be there with me. But I think since then, in recent times, I've learned that that's not the way to be. You're never going to find happiness if you're relying on others. So I've worked really hard to, you know, be able to, and this is even pre-COVID, but to be alone, to be in my own space, to meditate, to journal and to get enjoyment, you know, out of being alone. I've had to learn that. And that was really tough, but I've I made an effort to do so because I, I just don't believe you can stay happy when you rely on others. Yeah. So, so is that something you've learned? Yeah. It's something I've learned. And maybe it's not because I've learned because I've been disappointed at various times. I don't know if this would necessarily be a turning point. I know we're going to go into turning points a bit later on, but there was a moment, I remember it was Australia Day. I've, I've talked about this on my podcast, but there was a moment on Australia Day 2018, I believe. So January, 2018. And I invited people over for Australia Day. We had a great day. And then at the end of the day, I remember I sort of broke down. I think it might've been the end of that day or maybe the next day. I deleted social media on New Year's Day. I said, no more social media because I was getting a bit overwhelmed with typing and you know, addicted to the likes and the people saying, oh, you know, well said or whatever, when I made political remarks or, you know, social remarks. And I found that was overwhelming. So I got rid of it, thought it was not very good for me and had all these people over, but I wasn't really enjoying it. And I remember just sort of having an anxiety or a panic attack later that day or the next day where I sort of ended up just like on the floor, you know, like just sort of saying, this is not the way I want to like be. I just couldn't get happiness from others anymore for some reason. I just sort of wanted to distance myself. So that made me grow. That made me begin a journey, a search. I I called it a tunnel moment where you're staring down the dark black tunnel and you have to go through it or else you're just going to end up in the same place as you were before. And it will just, this thing that I've never experienced before will happen again one day. So I decided to go on a journey of rediscovery, which you know was really interesting. I didn't know where to start. I, I went to see a psych at the time just to discuss a few things. A couple of months later, it took a while. I talked to friends about it, but I just couldn't. Yeah, I, I was in a bit of a, I would say a dark place, but I feel like I'm so much better for it. And I think that was a big turning point for me to reinvent who I was. So that part, I mean, when you're reflecting on this now, how do you, so you see that as a turning point in regards to a reevaluation of yourself. Like I like the phrase you use, the journey of rediscovery. So there's sort of it pivoted you in a situation, well, pivoted you in a, in a direction of I've got to find some way of what, well, hey, would you finish that sentence? I've got to find a way to equilibrium, I'd say, to not be so reliant on external forces. Because if I was reliant on someone saying how good I was to feel happy and I was breaking down if someone said I wasn't good enough, that's not a really great way to to exist. So I thought, you know, I also, yeah, just I was realizing maybe more and more that people aren't necessarily the best judge of anything, let alone someone else, of, of me. So I've got to be the person that sort of controls, you know, my feelings and the way I behave. I can't just push that onto someone else to say, I'm angry because of you or I'm happy because of you. 
I've got to be like, no, 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 I'm balanced and, and I can do this because of my choices. You know, I'm putting too much stock into your opinion rather than you're making me feel this way. So that's where I wanted to move towards. Yeah. So this this part of moving away from external validation, I think this sense of feeling that the way I've coped in life has been to be there in a in a way with people that is well, it could be self-sacrificing, like giving a lot of yourself, giving a lot of your time. I mean, it's ironic in a way that you had people over in your house, and and so you had the you know this is Matt the the socialising person connecting with people, but that in itself became a trigger for an, you know, an existential, well, at least a panic, uh, an anxiety. And I often think about anxiety as being like, uh, I often tell my clients this, is, you know, it's not the main game. It's just the a bit player, but it's a player that we focus on. But it's just a canary in a coal mine of something that's going on for you. And, yeah, how do you feel about when I say it that way? Yeah, and, and you've just actually reminded me of something that I, I sort of didn't allude to, that this wasn't – I said it was the first, but I'd had another – moment of quite significant anxiety where I just didn't want to be around people about four years before that. And I'd had an issue at my workplace where someone didn't like me. And How is that possible? I, I don't know. This is, that was my thoughts exactly. Someone really didn't like me and, I, and they were putting me down. And, so, and then I ended up thinking a bit of paranoia of what were they saying to others? How are they making me out to to people I thought were close are people that, you know, walk past without saying hello in the corridor, actually, maybe they've just spoken to that person, you know, which I, I knew intellectually was not right, but I started getting those feelings, which I couldn't control to a point where my favorite events were socializing, going to the bar, you know, enjoying times. Like there was some um, going away party for a friend and I just told him, I can't go. I'm sorry. I can't be there. And he was just mystified because I hadn't shared any of this with anyone. But then I, once that happened, I realized I've got to confront this. And I actually spoke to the person and just sat for about an hour and a half, letting them unleash, uh, you know, a tirade of words upon me of why they didn't like me. And I just said, you know what? Thank you for sharing, you know? And I felt better, you know? It wasn't this mystery anymore. So I learned from that and I thought I'll never, ever let anxiety get to me again because I'm now strong enough to accept people that don't like me. You know, I can just, whatever. And then all of a sudden, it happened again four years later when I thought that I'd never be able to have that as a strong male, you know, that sort of guy. This doesn't happen to me. And then it did again. So I thought, I've got to do something here. This, I can't let this happen again four years later. Yeah. It's interesting you say it that way. So would you describe yourself, put aside those two occasions, would you describe yourself as an anxious person generally? Like, do you know what? I wouldn't have said that I was at all. I would have said that, however, I've always been shy, always been afraid of rejection. And I think I used friends or alcohol or a setting to make myself feel more brave and courageous and to do anything. Externally, people would say that you're, you know, captain of a sports team worthy, you're life of the party, you're this guy that doesn't care what people think, the comedian, you know, that sort of guy I was to others. But in my mind, I wonder if that was just a facade to protect myself a little bit. Yeah, I think that I was definitely afraid of, of rejection or, you know, of certain situations. So maybe I, I wasn't anxious, like, what's going to happen here? But I was definitely a, had the script in my mind of, you know, what does this person think of me? I won't approach that girl at the bar or whatever, you know? Yeah. So where do you think that part of you, the fear of rejection, 
where do you think that part comes from? Like if you sort of in your, you know, this journey of rediscovery, have you been able to locate that part of you? Yeah, I've definitely moved on from that by self-talk and, and, you know, strategies to realize that it doesn't matter. Like people, I will never know what people are really thinking, so it doesn't matter. Um, and And I move on from those elements. I'm really not that way anymore, but... To, to, to go back and try and unpack it, it's actually probably something I need to do. I can't look, growing up, there was, I guess, an unpredictability in my childhood, which I don't know if it necessarily meant rejection. I grew up in a household where my mum, being Italian, my mum was extremely fearful of everything and wouldn't let us go outside to play on the street when we were, you know, in primary school and wouldn't trust people. And, you know, she had a bit of a traumatic upbringing herself that, I think played a part in her anxiety and fear. And I think I saw a lot of others connect and be friends. And, you know, those TV shows where someone comes over and says, Hey, Mrs. S and whatever, you know, you see all that, that didn't happen in my life. Like that wasn't there. And early on. So I think maybe it was the fact that I missed out on that and wanted that as a kid, maybe like I definitely got that eventually. And I, and I had that probably more than most, you know, in later teen years and early 20s, but it took me to seek that out and reject and fight sort of my mum's control to do that, although she's a lovely, beautiful woman. She had her own issues that she was dealing with and raising kids was, you know, she had her issues with, you know, sometimes. So, um, yeah, I think maybe it came from there that I wished I had friends in seven and eight, you know, those formative years. I had some friends, but I wish I had the ability to not just react so your mum kept the distance from people, like so there wasn't an element there that people came into your life growing up. Like there weren't a lot of like people wouldn't come up. Like is that what you mean? Like is that yeah? Oh, mum was extremely social in terms of family, cousins, and her close friends. Like I had cousins and and friends that she trusted over all the time. And if we went to where she grew up, Swan Hill, or to where her friends lived, like over in Essendon Way. She'd be like, you're frolic and free, but she hated being in Preston. She hated leaving her network and and being there. She didn't trust it and she didn't trust anyone around and didn't like random people. Like, you know, hey, I met this person at school. Would you like to meet their parents and we can hang? No way. No, not doing that. Like that. But if it was cousins or family friends. So people she knew, people she, she was a member of or a tribe of, right? So, you know, I just, I just want to circle back to the first comment we talked about when I talked about, asked you about your personality and you said, I'm an outgoing person, enjoy people's, you know, company, but don't like environments I can't control where I'm not a member of. What are you? <laughs> wow. I never thought of it like that. Because, you know, that sounds a bit like your mum, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Look, in saying that, I'm I'm more thinking of where I feel comfortable. So I can go in a room of people talking about, I don't know, something I'm interested in and I've never met anyone and I'm fine with. I think it's more I'm not interested in going out to Richmond with all these tall Australian six foot six guys I don't know with all their girls dressed in whatever. I just don't like that situation, whereas my mates were fine with that. They could just do that and said, what, who cares what they're doing, you know, whereas I'd be like, I don't like the fact that everyone's trying to be something they're not in this environment. They're, they're peacocking, they're, 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 you know, chest out. and There's a sense of mistrust associated with that. You, you, don't, you don't trust it, which I, which I think, and we'll go to this a bit later when we talk about the portrait, but I think there is something there about, you know, we talked a bit about some of these, when you filled out some of these surveys, what the income is strong, but sort of there, and I think it's, 
you know, that's why you just don't can't rely on surveys in a way. You need to talk through some of the stuff. Is there's an underlying aspect here of that of mistrust, right? There's a need there. If you flip it around, it's not so much that you did you you know you're mistrusting. It's just that you 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 the need for you is to feel like I can trust what's around me, right? So there's a, there's a universal like a, a primary need that we have for to feel connected and not rejected is a need for us to trust people. So sometimes this part of fear of rejection can be sometimes um, no one really understands me, right? No one validates me, right? That, that's, that's something slightly different. It can be also people leave me, right? So there's a part of abandonment there that people leave me. It was unstable. You talked about instability there too. The other part though can be about I, I tend to, I've grown up in an environment or I've experienced or vicariously experienced parent or a peer, or the social milieu that you've grown up in, where the external face or external environment that you're in um, is one where it can't be trusted. And either if you're, if you, only if you're a member of it, right, or a part of your tribe, or it's, you know, someone that's familiar or, or come accustomed to it. So then the way you then cope with that is because you don't talk about it that way. The way you cope with that is, well, the way at least you've coped with that through your personality traits i'm going to use the best part of me to achieve my goals to make that a trusting environment is i'm going to be externally oriented to people and i'm going to try to seek approval from people right so that's that's the way does that make sense what i'm saying yeah absolutely i think it's not necessarily the second point you made which was fear of people leaving me i think it was it's more people don't understand me as a that sort of hit the nail on the head because Entering early high school, I realized that everyone around me, you'd have one-on-one conversations with people and they'd be open and talk about themselves. And then the minute they were in this boys group, you know, all boys school, the minute they'd enter a group, they'd they'd betray you. They'd share the secret you told or, or walk away from you, which is, I guess, rejection. But it's also that I saw through that. I realized, hey, you're not that person. Like, what are you doing? And I couldn't fake it. Um, so I, I, I walked away um, from it. I, I couldn't fake liking the music that people liked because that was the cool thing to do or to take badges off cars and, you know, like whatever kids were doing. I, I This is precedent. I went to the, um, yeah, the old Morris brother, Redden, Samaritan College, you know, but it was, it was a, but it was, you know, it was on the edge of being a real working class, struggling syringes on the floor towards some people moving in that were, you know, a change, and now it's very different. But but back then it was, yeah. Yeah, I think this part where you talk a bit about this this need to be understood is really quite important. I was wondering if, if I sort of put the two in front of you and to make a choice, is it people not understanding me or is it that I find actually the environment that sometimes I, I, I'm in? Yeah, it, it might be the second because of the first. I can't trust this environment because I know that these people are full of shit, if you want, you know, a better term. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, I find that. Most people lie about themselves and who they are most of the time growing up as a teenager. And and some people still do that today. And the people I like are the people that can open up a bit and, and realize that they're, you know, take the piss out of themselves, realize that their mistakes are okay, be vulnerable. I don't like it when people aren't that. Is that why you, you uh, host a podcast called Moments of Clarity? I think, yeah. Seek some truth? Absolutely. I, I do seek a truth and I, I seek 
And I find, and and this is something I struggle with constantly today and, and looking even at protests in the city and, you know, that stuff and it angers and outrages people and, and me. But what I do is I, I'm just like, the, these people are, are babies in a way. They, they're unable to see the effect that they have on the world. Everything's happening to them. And maybe because I had thought of myself like that once upon a time, I just wish that they could grow up a little bit the way that I did. And so I have empathy for it, but then I also have outrage about it too, that so many people in life, I would say more than half for me, are unable to see that their actions actually cause the negativity around them rather than it happening externally. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at, in a, and that challenges me to think about people and not judge, but then also be quite a harsh judge at the same time, which, and that's the stage I'm at, but moments of clarity, the idea is to talk to people like yourself, like people that have actually attempted to seek something that's important to them and find that truth and say, you know what, I was in a great position here, but I realized that this wasn't necessarily going to be happy. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to do something to make the people around me better and myself better. And, And that might take a bit of taking the external shell off myself to do that. And I like that about people. And that's my search for truth, people's truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just wondering that part of seeking this truth. So you talked a bit about a, a turning point, which was that at a moment in Australia Day. And I guess maybe it's the genesis of that sort of, you know, of that moment sort of started four years earlier in a white, not genesis, but the, at least it started four years earlier when you had a similar experience around a panic attack or at least an anxiety about it colleague at work what about a low is it it could be a couple of a low point but is it what's a low point in that you can talk to i've got a few in my life but probably in the past but do you know just on that that journey it started in 14 i'm a lover of footy footy has been something a really a great part of my life and in 2016 when bulldogs won the grand final in my life i'd seen everyone with their posters up around the the rooms of premierships you know and wish one day this could be me. I could be the person with that sticker on the back that says premiers. And I thought that it would somehow make me the happiest person ever. And I loved the day. I enjoyed the day, but it didn't live up to the expectation. It didn't live up to this has changed my life. It was a cool thing. It was a great moment, but I've had many great moments in life. It was, it didn't actually change my world. And that brought me back down to earth a little bit too. And I kept doing things like travel or, you know, whether it was a holiday or whether it was a, a big thing that I tried to do, like a big party or, and it was never, it never lived up to expectation. Like I always had this massive buildup and, and people would say, I do that with like food for lunch. Like this is going to be the best lunch ever. And if it's not, I'm depressed for an hour, you know, like, <laughs> but like I do that for everything. Like I seem to build these things up. Like this will be the thing that makes me happy. This will be the thing that makes me my life change. And it never did. And I realized that the end of the journey was never the thing that I loved. I wasn't someone that climbed Everest and then was happy. It was the climbing. Uh, I guess the being around people and enjoying those moments was the best part. The actual event wasn't my motivation, getting the job, getting the car, getting this, getting that. It was just a tick box. What's next? Like I didn't, I wasn't validated by that. Whereas sitting, you know, with someone and just having a deep and meaningful gave me that or someone saying, Hey, thanks for helping me or whatever. That was meaningful to me or, or even reading a book that was meaningful. So I realized during this 2014 to 18 journey, I think so many expectations were just achieved. I achieved so much and it didn't do it for me. And I think that may have been a part that 
broke me down as well because Australia Day party, I've organized this, I've got the house, I've got the barbecue, I've got it all. And it, and it probably didn't do it for me. And that was the last, that was the breaking point. So yeah, you forced me to look through that a little bit and and try to unpack that. And I think that's a bit of an expectation. So there's been many points in life where people would say that's a high point and it just didn't reach the point up here that I expected it to. And that was probably the low points. That's the low point too, yeah. I mean, in a way, sometimes a narrative, a sequence, like there's a sequences, right, that we experience. So there's like there's a redemptive sequence. So for example, you know, the low point and then we overcome something and and we see something through the go through the other end of it, you know, the sort of you know the redemption, you know, like um, you often see it in sport, you know, the I struggled through a lot of injuries or you know, overcome adversity and got to the pinnacle of something. But there's also the, what they call the contamination sequence, which is part of life where something good happens to us, but we sort of contaminate it. Like somehow it's never good enough, or you know, you see yourself in a different light. It's often the, you know I've achieved all this stuff, but I can never enjoy it, or you know something you know. Um, a really positive event happened and and like a bit like we just said around the dolphins, you know, what a beautiful thing sitting on the beach in Port Sea, seeing all these dolphins, and but I'm lonely. I can't share it with anyone. And I do think that there is probably a part there that people sort of are a bit predisposed to some of these things or at least, you know, some people can see things from more of a positive lens or, you know, experience the positive emotions and other people sometimes don't see this as much, don't experience the positive emotions as much. So, so where would you put yourself in that context? I would say that maybe my expectations of what I think I should do are different from what I want and, or what I think would make me happy is different. I think that the moments that I felt elation and positivity and happiness were where maybe I went against the grain or against what I felt I needed to do. You know, like I was pretty clever at school, but by year 12, I sort of abandoned that and just enjoyed myself. And that was the best year of my life, maybe, you know, year 12, like, because I didn't care about VCE when I should have, because I was, you know, doing okay up to that point. But I wasn't, once I let go of the the expectation of doing well, I just enjoyed, you know, finding lots of friends and and listening to music and going to see bands and going to, you know, outdoor parties in other parts of Melbourne where you'd, you'd walk two hours to get there or whatever, because you couldn't afford a taxi. Like that was cool moments for me. And maybe because I missed that as a younger teen that I didn't get to experience, you know, the, the rebellion. I was always a goody, sort of a good boy. <laughs> and then I decided to not, not be bad, but do things that probably were a bit rebellious, like a bit dangerous, you know, be out late at night or, you know, whatever. So drink a little bit too much when you shouldn't, you know, things like that. It was that those were the joyful days, but then they were probably harmful or could lead to dangerous things happening. So I guess I then had to realize, hey, I want, I'm, I'm risk averse by nature, I believe, because, but that doesn't necessarily give me the happiness I, I seek. Like I'm not someone that just wants to have the perfect manicured front yard and everything perfect. And that's my life happiness, but I've somehow had to find a balance there. So I think the positive, you, you mentioned positive emotions. It's, I'm definitely able and I can have those really strong emotions positively to a point where I'm just elated, but they're often not aligned to the pathway that I think I should set out for myself. It's usually a random something that comes up that I didn't have any expectation of, or I was expecting it to be bad and it wasn't. I think they're the best moments. So is the the serendipity of life that you crave? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, So if you had to narrate that part of you at 18, talk about that period and now, so how would you be narrating 
the 18 year old Matt Matthew versus the and the 32 year old Matthew? I would say that 18 year old Matthew was extremely lost and seeking something, but by doing so was willing to put himself in situations that he actually really enjoyed. But there was a darkness somewhere there of or an escape somewhere there that kept meaning that I had to keep filling up that happiness basket, that bucket. Yeah, I think that that's true, but I wasn't sure of myself. I look back and think what a naive, immature, not very nice person sometimes as well. Like, you know, if I could get a laugh at someone's expense, I probably would take it. Even though I don't think I did that. I saw a lot of people around me do that, but I don't know if I, I would, whereas today I wouldn't do that. I'm conscious of how other people feel very much and I'm comfortable in who I am and how I interact with people to a point where I don't have as many ups and downs. I don't have the downs, but I also probably don't have the ups that I had. So I'd say that I'm more balanced, yeah. So more balanced now. But you mentioned darkness quite a bit, actually, when you think about that there have been dark places. So it seems like there's a continuity story here. Maybe there's several continuity stories that are sort of interplaying, isn't there? But there's this, and again, you're still evolving. I like to think we're always evolving and we get a greater clarity of who we are. But you've mentioned this word darkness quite a bit. Would that be something that people, well, there's two questions really. One is, you know, tell me more about this darkness part and that's been present there. How often, how long has that been present there? And two, is this something that you share with other people? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if it lives with me. It's not like the black cloud of depression or anything like that. It's just more periods of my life that I have forgotten on purpose. <laughs> I've really, I've, I've, well, what have you done? Relegated them to sort of the compartmentalised it, you think, or what do you mean? Occasionally, people that I know growing up will tell me a story that shocks me about an event, a tantrum I threw, crying, you know, fighting with my mum or something, or and I, I've just put them away. I've put them away. But and what I mean by darkness is not necessarily that I feel they're e- bad spots, but their darkness of I just. I haven't illuminated that part of my life. I've tried to relegate it. However, I do try to find out why. I try and self-analyze all the time. And I do talk to people. I'll talk to you as a psychologist, but then we're also in public here. So I'm willing to talk about things, but I'm also willing to talk to friends that I trust or, or people that want to hear and are willing to share their story. I'll tell them whatever I remember. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I think I grew up in a house where my mum struck. My dad was very insular. And he was a public servant that was very intellectual and intelligent, but he had parents that worked in factories speaking Italian. And he moved from Italy at a young age that probably affected him. And he was very much a his own person. Like he didn't have friends. He had some people he knew, but I wouldn't say he had friends, but he was very outgoing and funny and people liked him. And then my mum was the opposite. She had all these friends, but had weird relationships with them where they'd argue and fight and then cry and hug and, you know, that sort of thing. So- And I think that's the relationship I had with my parents too. My dad was always the one we talked about. I was obsessed with geography and history and stuff. So I'd always talk about that or or statistics. He was at the ABS. And I remember talking to him about what he was reading the spreadsheets and whatever and and asking questions, reading the mailways. And we'd do that and all go walk to the video shop and talk about, you know, who this director was or something. Whereas my mum, we'd have deep conversations and really have hugs and that sort of stuff. But then there'd be, you know, six days of, I hate you and don't, you know, fighting every time we saw each other. So I learned a lot from both, but that, 
they didn't like they are still together my parents and if they listen to this i'm sorry for talking about it but hopefully they don't but they i never saw love between them i saw a need i saw them working in in tandem to raise three boys without you know without all the the means they're middle class now but i wouldn't have said that growing up i would have said we we probably scraped through a little bit at an early age somehow that all changed but yeah it feels like there was always a battle and that they were always struggling mentally and emotionally and the three boys had to hide away from that a fair bit and if we got involved it would be an argument it would be a defense mechanism it would be an attack it would be a you know an eruption into a the most loving house you could imagine after that you know where people are like i just love your family like you're so close it's like yeah but you didn't see what happened yesterday or whatever like so i think i hid that part for a while and I was embarrassed by that. And I was a very embarrassed boy, actually, growing up. I was very, very embarrassed. I used to think that I said something and if someone laughed, I'm like, what did I say? Do I have something on my face? Did, did what happened? And, and I always remember my brothers. I was always embarrassed by them <laughs> and teased them a little bit and wasn't very nice to them. And then I realized that I was teased a little bit year seven and eight. This was the time. However, then I found my friends and found those groups and was, you know, external persona, tougher, stronger, friendly, laugh, laugh it off you know, be merry, whatever, and to try to, the facade. And I realized I was fake. And I think why I'm okay today is because I was fake for so long and I just didn't want to be fake anymore, <laughs> even though it was great. And there were amazing moments. And sometimes those moments that are fake are real and you just say that they're fake. But yeah, anyway, I'm unpacking a lot with you right now, but, but yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, so just on this part, right? Because do, do you feel like this is, you're unpacking stuff that, you know, in a way that, like how often do you talk about this? Not often. No, not often. I have, but never really to a point where I've written my narrative down. I would have so many things that if I actually had to write a biography that I've never thought of or never knew. Yeah. 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 There's a lot there to sort of bring together in a way. I guess the parts that come for me is there's a sort of theme that comes up a little bit about you, an examined life and an unexamined life. Like there's the, and it maybe goes back to this, that's about emotionality that is, tending not to engage in that emotionality about what's really going on except when it erupts in a in an anxious moment, you know, like because some of it could be quite painful. And so so there's a part there, but for, let's just put that over there for a moment, right, because let's think a bit about this, this Matthew from a trait perspective, right? This is layer one, the dispositional traits, your, your layer of, um, you know, who you really are, put aside emotional needs, motivation, drives, and goals, which is layer two, personality. So layer one is sort of like the one that the world, the little baby that comes into the world, you know, heavy genetic endowment from parents and development of your own temperament around the first few years of life. And I, I like to think about this in terms of like the, the big five, which is the stability factors, which are three parts of the big five, and there's two that are more plasticity factors, right? So stability factors help you achieve goals. Right. So these are things like agreeableness, your ten- tendency to, to get along with people versus self-interest, conscientiousness, which is more your cap- capacity to get things done at work or school, and need for stability, which is what they call neuroticism, which is how you cope with stressful environments. Okay. So there's part of you that's agreeable. You tend to have a high level of agreeableness, which helps you, you know, get along with people. So you're likely to be altruistic. So you tend to do something out of the goodness of your heart. So it's a self-fulfilling thing. It's not a things you have to do. You tend to cooperate with people. 
and you got a sense of deep empathy or sympathy with others. So the pain of suffering, even the way you talked a bit about, you know, the rioters or, you know, the protesters, you know, there's something there about them that is the suffering or some sort of part of them has not been, their needs not been met, you know. As well as being angry about it, you know, I can be frustrated. Yeah, intellectually, I'm extremely angry and horrified. And then I go uh, one layer deeper and I'm like, what's hurting them? What what do they need? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a deeper question. It's a deeper sense of feeling about it, right? So this sort of things, this sort of agreeableness helps you get along with people and it sort of um, and helps you deal with some of the things or at least your coping mechanisms to deal with some of the things you talked about, about growing up. So I see this as being like, innately you, right? Conscientiousness is the second part of these stability personality factors, which are getting things done. So you're very high, for example, in orderedness, or self-discipline, you know, cautiousness, right? But there's another part that is not that high, which is more around achievement striving. So sometimes it's okay to just get along with the minimal amount of work. Might, might be perceptualized sometimes as being lazy, but I don't think it's being laziness. It's more about, you know, I'll just do enough. You could probably do more but you probably just do enough on another thing. In times of life when you haven't done more, right? So there's maybe this part where you don't get caught up necessarily in I have to do 10 things today, right? But generally speaking, you're high in this, so that helps you achieve things, right? And it probably has helped you, you know, get through some tough points in life. You know, uh, and how do I get to finish each well when I'm going out and doing things well, you know? Well, I'm doing all these other things, but I can do all the, you know, I can get myself ordered enough to do it enough, right? Never stability is an interesting one because generally people who are high in this generally find it difficult to deal with stressful environments, right? But you don't seem to be this type of person. So this is very low for you. So it, whilst we talked about about anxiety today, it's not a pervasive way of feeling. Like you're generally not an anxious person, right? You're generally not a person who feels a lot of negative emotions, Right? You may not feel a lot of positive emotions, but you may not feel necessarily a lot of positive and negative emotions. And whilst we talked about subconsciousness, which is quite interesting, that you, you did sometimes at, at times feel awkward and discomfort in terms of how people perceive you, I don't see that necessarily as innately you. It's probably growing up uh, with different experiences that's made you feel that way rather than it being innately you, if that makes sense. I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah. So in a way, you've got a bit of a trifecta here, if there's a trifecta in terms of personality traits to help you achieve goals, right? Because you've got high agreeableness, high consciousness, and low neuroticism, need for stability, which is which is often can help you achieve your goals. So not that other people that don't have a different combination can't achieve goals, but, to, but might require them a lot more effort than you need. That makes sense, right? On that, I've always thought I just go through the motions and things just happen for me. <laughs> And that maybe just makes sense there. In saying that, there's parts of me, yeah, that I've had to work really hard on. And But maybe it's the expectation thing that I'm okay. I want to have a job, but I don't necessarily want to be the best at that job because that'll take double the work that I'm currently doing or something. So I'm happy to have the job, have, you know, yeah. So, and if it's about having that job, then it's about, then it's about a motivation and a goal and a drive, which is sort of different to this part. This part is more about innately you. But if you want to get that job, like I know recently you got a promotion and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was like, you know, it might require you a lot of effort to try to go through the whole process, but you were driven by something else. It wasn't innately you saying, okay, well, I'm going to put 10 things on my list and I'm going to try to get them all completed, right? This is more about you saying, well, I really want to get there, you know, 
you know, I'll do it on this occasion because I really want to do it. There's other two factors of personality, uh, what they call plasticity factors. They help you change direction. So, you, so the first three are more about helping you achieve goals. These ones are more about changing direction, right? Changing your goals, pivoting to a different direction. I hate the word pivot, but anyway, I'll use it. I know people don't like it, but I don't mind it actually. But so this is more about extroversion, right? Social orientation to people. You know, some people who are more socially oriented, and you are, you're very high in this, right? So high in warmth, you know, you're a very warm guy. You know, people conceptualize you, you know, probably see you, probably make that comment. I mean, I have only, well, I've only met you online, but, you know, but I, I know I've got a sense of warmth from you. You're gregarious, like to be around people. I know you've got some conditions around that, but generally like to be around people. And you can assert your need, right? You can assert yourself. You know, you can be a leader. You talked about being a leader. This is probably something in you that's innately you, right? Where you're low in is probably excitement seeking. You're not really high in, you know, getting your adrenaline rush, you know, around a whole range of different things. But this has helped you, these sort of three things in particular, warmth, being around people, gregarious, being a leader, is more, it's helped you to change direction, right, to to change a course of where I'm on, right? The other one is openness to experience, which is more about, curiosity, imagination, capacity to engage in different ideas, challenge the status quo, right? And you're high in this as well, right? So high in taking actions, engaging different ideas, abstract ideas versus just concrete ideas, right? And being able to challenge routine, challenge conventions, challenge authority, so to speak. And that's helped you as well change direction or, you know, take a different course, uh, not be stuck in the same context. So, so there's this there's a, a capacity to explore and be curious. There is a part here around low emotionality, which is you know sometimes it can be more of an intellectual exercise rather than a, an emotional exercise, and that's where I think sometimes you know what well, comes out sometimes in symptomatically around anxiety at times or panic attack or something goes on and you're disturbed by something because you don't want to you cut to you seem to compartmentalize that part, right? So, so far, has that resonating with you? Very, very, very much resonating well, and, and, and I believe it. And a lot of people have said that you've got a high IQ and a low EQ to me. And I've said, I can talk about emotion, but as you said, it's about intellectualizing rather than feeling. I'm happy to talk about it a lot and understand it intellectually, but do I actually go and feel that? And yeah, and even talking to people, I mean, I'll happily talk about people's feelings, but I'm, if it's about the day-to-day going on and what happened, I'm like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, work through this, like understand that that's just you thinking that way and you can move on and, and focus on this stuff that really matters like famine over there or, you know, and I, I move on to the intellectual matters and the, and the big picture and the abstract stuff. So, whereas you do need to unpack and be better personally and more in I say in control, but just more aware of your needs before you can move to someone else. You know, putting your own oxygen on before the person next to you is important. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's probably about right. And so when you've got those moments where I should be feeling something here, I should be getting excited about this, you know, there's a part of me that I'm not engaging with, right? So maybe that's an opportunity to think about, you know, to well, not think about, but to feel, to engage that part, you know, because sometimes it comes up in these, like I call symptoms, right? The canary in a coal mine perspective around anxiety, you know, sometimes or panic or, you know, your body's telling you almost something about yourself that you need to, am I missing something emotionally here, an emotional life, part of life, you know? I'm upset about the fact that people come over to my house and something's gone on with me. I'm emotionally in turmoil now about, you know, I'm not enjoying this. I should be enjoying this. 
you know, what's wrong with me, right? This person doesn't like me at, uh, at school. Like my colleague, what, what's going on there? What's happening there? Something that doesn't fit your cognitive framework about, you know, who you are and what you should be experiencing, right? So that's like layer one. Layer two is more about your emotion, your, your unmet needs. And we've talked about that. So this is like little Matt who coming into the world, he engages with early childhood experiences and the developer framing to see this through, right? A prism to see these early experiences. So these experiences are sort of, you know, I think curiously you experience some of these not through your own direct experience of mistrust, but I think there's something here about your mum and your dad, your mum in particular around decompartmentalising different people in her life, right? And somehow little Matt grows up thinking, okay, well, that's the way, you know, the way maybe the world is. Maybe, you know, maybe that's the way I see the world now. You know, it is unpredictable. I can see mum gets all distressed about this and, and somehow I need to recalibrate this in my own mind about what this is. Oh, yeah, well, maybe I can't trust people either. Yes, the world is a trusting place. People do take advantage of you, you know, and you grow up in a milieu where, you know, yeah, I do see syringes on the street and people taking hubcaps off the, you know, cars and taking sort of, you know, you know, destroying property, whatever that experience is. So you collate all this material and you form these frameworks around, oh, people are a bit untrustworthy. But because you're such a, a naturally, innately engaging person with people and warm with people, people don't see this part as much, right, because it, it camouflages this mask that's sort of there. It's like this social actor that's there but sits underneath this is this need to feel I need to trust people but I don't, right? So this self-consciousness is really more about I actually don't trust people actually can be around people and I'm pretty good at it and I'm pretty sociable and pretty agreeable, but there's a part of me that's always this, I don't trust them, right? And it's sort of there, it was planted there by someone else. It wasn't actually you. It was a primary need that wasn't met where parents should have been saying, actually, you know, the world is a trusting place and this is me. This is not you. This is my issues, not your issue, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the way you've coped with that, you develop your own, then other schemas, you know, I will give a lot of myself to people. So it's more of a self-sacrificing part or I'm unrelenting, my, unrelenting my standards, you know, I, I have these standards about people. So if people don't meet them, then they are, they're sort of out in a way, right? Not in, a, in it, they're excluded, but I sort of come into my, I sort of put these standards around people, right, and judgments. And there's another part around admiration seeking. I'm always seeking approval from others, right? And, and sometimes it, um, it hurts me because it, that's not always going to be met all the time. So you've made some judgments about this. You know, you've gone through life and you, you've experienced this road of discovery where you're sort of saying, actually, this external validation is not working for me anymore, all right? And so I'm not going to be seeking that as much, all right? So you, you're developing more adaptive strategies to cope with that. So my narrative then changes. I'm a person that's, you know, scared, lost, you know, feeling socially awkward in a way, not socially awkward in the sense that you, you know, you know, because you're not socially awkward, but your perception that some people might judge you that way because it's untrusting. But now I'm on a different path, you know. I'm using my my other personality traits, which are my plasticity factors to help me get out of this this process of, you know, finding more adaptive strategies to get my needs met. So over to you. What do you think? Yeah, I think you've hit the the nail on the head on a few things. I think on on everything. Yeah. And it is Life is so weird. Obviously, you know, all of these things can only be taken from, you know, interactions, survey, then my responses. You know, there's always something underlying that, that could be there. But I, I do, yeah, 
It's interesting. I think the compartmentalizing and the judgment is definitely there. I also think there's an element of if I try and get too much joy from this, then I don't get it. How shattered will I be? So I'll protect myself from that by just lowering my positivity about it. And I think I feel that way with, I always feel that if I was to put a bet on and lose money, not that I bet anymore. I mean, I never really bet, but if I did, I'd put 10 bucks on. And if I lost it, I'd be like thinking about that loss of $10 for ages. And if I won money, I wouldn't care. Like I wouldn't be like, that's the best thing that's ever happened, which helped me not be a gambler, I guess. I just didn't want to do it. And I almost feel the same with a footy game. I feel relief after a win rather than joy. And I feel, you know, sadness. So I'm going to be shattered if we lose the grand final this weekend. But if we win it, I'll be like, that was great. Like, thank, I'm glad I didn't feel bad today. <laughs> you know, so I'm wondering if that's my protection. There's a protection mechanism somewhere there that I just really don't want to have those negative emotions. So I have to hide the positive, maybe? I'm not sure. Yes. Well, I think there are those coping mechanisms that we have and to deal with disappointment, right? But if you think about it, maybe the part that you just described there about compartmentalizing, detaching, from the enjoyment. I just wonder if there's a part of you that doesn't allow yourself to experience this because that's what you've heard, right? There's someone else has put those thoughts there, right? And I'm not saying this in an exterior, in, uh, like a, you know, it's not about criticizing parents, right? But it, it's inevitable that we're going to learn things from our parents, right? And we're going to, you know, and so we're not, well, I encourage you to do, think about it. I know it's not a therapy session, but, but it, in a way, right? But it's about saying, okay, so what's that thought that's there? Is it actually my thought? Or is it something that I've heard, right, and I've adopted, right? What's Why is it there? Because you've got this curiosity, right? So I want you to start using it in that context, right? This process of rediscovery is that there is a part of you, Matt, that is very is able and willing to engage in a process of rediscovery. So I'd be curious about this part and say, okay, well, what's the origins of this? What's the origins of this part of me? You know, where did it come from? Is that what I heard growing up? I can't enjoy a moment. I can't. You know, I always got to be suspicious of good things happening to you because, you know, because of bad things will happen eventually, you know. You know, you can't enjoy, you can't sit on your laurels, right, because inevitably what will happen is you'll be disappointed, right? Life isn't meant to be enjoyed. Like, I don't know, these are sort of sometimes I think comes up in, you know, at least in, in Italian Catholic families. <laughs> the biggest influence in that regard, sorry, Franco, was my uncle. I didn't mention him at all, but my uncle is an unmarried man, not that that means anything, but he's doesn't have kids, doesn't have family. He doesn't have, there's no cousins on my dad's side. They met, they left and he was about 13. And I think he was traumatized by moving away from his home in Sicily to come to Australia where he was bullied and teased for being a little wog, you know, like, and I think he never grew from that. You know, you'd look at him and you'd think, is there a bit of the Asperger's type thing going on or is it a, a growing up setting? Like, is that a an actual trait of, of development, you know, brain development, or is that of trauma? And he is the person that's always drilled in hard work and always do the best decision. Don't worry about the joy or the fun. Although he's coming around to that now, don't worry about the good thing. Just do what is right because, you know, when that good thing ends, you'll be wishing, you know, that you did the right thing. And I think that message came through to me loud and clear. And it's been validated so many times. It's like, be a teacher and remain a teacher because what's going to happen one day is that the world will turn to shit like it does everywhere and you'll be needing a job from the government. And it happened in COVID. You know, like 
I didn't move to the Central Australia to be a tour guide like I might have if he wasn't around. Or I didn't travel, the, you know, to go to Vietnam. Like, he's like, why would you go to North Korea? Like, you could die. Like, why would you bungee jump? Like, why would you do those things? And my mum's fear on top of that sort of made me against those really those things. However, when I do things that challenge me, I do feel that happiness and hype and that, but that needs to be spontaneous. I can't really think about it or I won't follow through. So um, here's a big factor, but in the same time, I'm almost happy that I've done that because I can provide a safe, stable life for my child and, and things like that. And maybe hopefully give them freedom to, to do the fun things a bit more. Well, you could, the whole point about this is, is uh, integrating. It's not either or. Right? It's not binary. So when your binary becomes inflexible and psychological inflexibility gets us stuck. So there's a part of there just having different parts of us. We've got to finish up in a moment, but how have you found today? Yeah, it was uh, illuminating. So the darkness in certain bits is gone. And, that, and then I can sort of identify that I do need to not intellectualize those things, but just feel them perhaps is one thing. I really enjoyed this chat. I feel I've learned a lot and, you know, going, uh, going to you for therapy, even though I feel like I don't necessarily need it, but I think that anyone, I'm going to the, the external again, just to say, you know, in general, people should do this rather than talking about myself. I really yeah, appreciate the time and the, the unpacking process and that there is a lot to unpack. You know, I haven't sorted things out. I haven't perfected anything. But as you said, I've got all the traits there that enable me to. So, you know, I should enjoy the curiosity. That's what I'm taking from it. That's great. That's good. Lovely talking to you, Matt. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thanks, Franco. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let me know what you think of this podcast episode or the podcast series in general. I respond to all reviews and really love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future guests to interview. You can also rate this episode on your favorite podcast platform. I would really appreciate this so that other people can hear about how you experience the show. You can also sign up to a regular newsletter, which you can find on the podcast webpage. Look forward to presenting new and interesting guests soon. Bye for now.